Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord, as always, for this time we have to be together this morning. Uh, Lord, this morning in particular, we want to pray for our, uh, our brothers and sisters in Kentucky. Uh, Lord, just the, the sheer devastation um, that was visited upon them. Uh, Lord, we trust you in all things. We know you are sovereign. Uh, we know your purpose is ultimately for the good. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you would comfort those who remain. Lord, just be with them as they begin to rebuild their lives and their homes. Uh, and keep them safe, Lord, and strengthen them during this time. Lord, for us gathered here this morning, as always, fill us with joy, fill us with hope and love and thanksgiving as we are in your house, as we have this opportunity to worship you and to remember the birth of your son during this season. Lord, we thank you, we praise you. I pray that we would honor you in all that we would do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you guys stand with us?
That was a pretty good idea, huh?
Lord, you are holy, and we just rejoice in all that you have done this morning. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we, again, we just lift it up to you. Pray that you would be glorified and honored in all that we do. Thank you, Lord, again, in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say you can be seated, but you guys took care of that. <laughs> hey, I, I'm sorry for the, for the mix-up there. I just, you know, sometimes, like, I can re recall times in church where everybody stands during worship, and I can recall times where everybody sits. We just want you guys to feel welcome to do both. I know for some people, standing the whole time is not easy, so I don't want anybody to feel uncomfortable. So that's, that's the whole idea there, but hopefully that wasn't too confusing, so... So from now on, consider yourself uh, allowed to stand or sit at your own discretion. <laughs> All right, well, just a few things I wanted to let you go. Oh, sorry. Uh, the kids, I understand, are doing a Sunday school painting craft today. It's going to take a good bit of time. So you kids get on out of here and go to Sunday school. <laughs> get going and get started. All right, just a few, <coughs> couple other things to remind you guys about. Uh, the cookie exchange is going to be next Sunday, December 19th, uh, so I believe there's a sign-up sheet for that. If you haven't signed up for that, uh, please do so. Uh, bring your favorite Christmas cookies and go home with uh, maybe a new favorite uh, that you find out in the exchange. Uh, Christmas Eve service is going to be Christmas Eve, uh, Friday the 24th, that's at 5 o'clock. Um, want to be here for that. Will be a slightly longer service, a little more worship, and a little bit of time afterwards for fellowship and finger foods as well. Uh, there will be no service planned for Saturday the 25th. Uh, we are planning an after Christmas party. That's uh, Sunday, uh, December 26th in two weeks at 1 o'clock at Martin's Barbecue in Spring Hill uh, for those who would like to attend that. Our next Musicians Fellowship is going to be uh, into January. That's going to be Saturday, January 22nd. So just have that marked on your calendar uh, for when that time comes. Uh, with that said, why don't we stand? Let's say hello to those around us. Make everybody feel welcome.
Well, good morning again. Good morning. Good to see y'all. Hey, uh, before you get too comfy sitting in your chairs, why don't we stand together? We're going to read the Word of God together. This morning, I'd like us to open our Bibles, or if you want to read off the screen, you can as well. We're going to be in Isaiah 55, starting in verse 6. So if you got your, uh, there we go, all right. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my, or your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts, then your thoughts. See, this is why you need to have your Bible open. There we go. All right, let's take it from... Oh, no, we're still going here. It's from verse 10. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Amen. Amen. All right, why don't you go ahead and be seated. That'll learn you. Hey, by the way, uh, uh, as far as our after Christmas party at Martin's in Spring Hill, there is a sign-up sheet uh, in the foyer on one of the tables there. So if you're planning on coming, you and your family, please sign up for that. And uh, as we mentioned last week, it's 12 bucks per adult and $7 per kid. However, if you've got a big family and that's kind of a tall order but you'd like to come, just let us know. I mean, we're subsidizing part of it, and if it's, if it's a bit much, just let me know. We'll take care of it for you. But um, that being said, I think there's a limit of like 80, so I think all y'all can maybe make it, but you better sign up because if anyone else shows up and you don't sign up, you're out of luck. That's some good barbecue. Uh, you know what? Um, yeah, yeah, I just plan to pay that day. Okay, very good. Uh, all right, well, uh, and also, um, uh, Michael uh, thankfully prayed about the disaster in Kentucky and, and all of that. Um, we mentioned a few weeks ago that we're planning on uh, joining with uh, Hope Force International to do some disaster relief training. The earliest they can do a class to do training is uh, uh, the next available time is going to be in January. So I'm going to have a sign-up sheet set up in the next week or so. Uh, and if you are interested in getting involved in that, uh, the training is $175 per person. But again, we're going to help offset that cost a little bit. Uh, however, we're not going to pay for all of it. We want you to have some skin in the game, too. A lot of times people will come and they'll do training, and then they'll just never be available to stuff. But if you throw a few bucks in it, now you're motivated. So anyway, so, uh, but that being said, um, if you would like to get involved in that, I think they're looking for a class of a minimum of 30. We'll have a sign-up sheet. Uh, I'm going to try and have it next Sunday. So do sign up then, and that'll give me an idea of whether we have enough for a class ourselves or if we're going to join maybe another fellowship in, in the next training or something like that logistically. So um, all right. So that being said, why don't you open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 16. We've been spending a lot of time over the last little bit um, considering the second coming of Christ, and we're getting near to that in the Scripture. 
um, in Revelation 19. That said, though, um, we are going to, um, in the next uh, Sunday, and then, of course, on Christmas Eve, we're actually going to spend a little time looking at Christ's first coming. So as we move into the Christmas season and that. By the way, uh, I don't know if you guys were following the news uh, uh, this week or not, and I don't know if we're ready to... Yeah, we are back there, but you may have seen this. Uh, yeah, the, uh, some of the new decor around the United Nations. Uh, it was donated by, uh, I think, a, a Hispanic artist, and um, it's, it's, it's intended to be a guardian of peace and security, uh, international peace and security, okay? It is, it's, it's actually ironic or it's not ironic, right? It's, uh, it's hard to imagine that anybody would not be aware of, to create something like this and not be aware of the biblical imagery that's involved there. But whether they were or not, what's that? Is it? Oh, you want me to scoot? Hold Yeah, I don't, want to, I don't want to put my face like right in the middle of that. <laughs> don't read into that or anything. But, you know, if you're familiar with uh, Daniel's description of the beasts that ultimately find their uh, ultimate expression in the Antichrist, and of course in Revelation 13 we read about it as well, um, whether or not the artists knew what they were creating in this, again, it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't have seen they would have done that completely ignorant to the imagery. But whether they did or not, uh, an image like this on display uh, goes a long way to sort of desensitizing people to some of these biblical ideas. Um, the idea that it's called a guardian of international peace and security. Um, and of course, the ultimate version of this is the person of Antichrist when he comes, um, who will be seen as the guardian of international peace and security when he comes. Um, the irony should not be lost on anybody. But this is where the world's going. So if anybody's sort of on the fence thinking, oh, what's the big deal? All you guys talk about, you know, the Lord's coming and all this kind of thing. You know, Peter warned us not to get too casual about that and think, oh, he's delaying his coming. You guys been talking about it forever. Hey, for the Lord, time is irrelevant. Things will happen exactly when he wants them to. And it doesn't matter how many years have gone by. He's told us about the things that are happening or will happen in the days leading up to when this finds its ultimate fulfillment. And so we want to be biblically aware. We want to spend time studying these things so we recognize them and so that we can warn others and let them know that the stuff you're seeing happening is not coincidental. It's not happenstance. It's actually stuff that the Lord has spoken about in surprisingly great detail. This is just one example of that. But it's a glaring example of that. You know, this should be enough for us to have an impetus to say, hey, by the way, do you see that really ugly, horrific-looking statue by the UN? Here's what that comes from. You know, it gives us an entrance. So please, get that horrific thing off the screen. And uh, let's go ahead. How big is it? Uh, I've, I, I've not heard measurements, but I've seen it, like, uh, around other things, and it looks about the size of a car, maybe, or something. So I think. I don't think it's huge. Um, but, you know, on that note, in concert with that, some of you have heard of the giant... Uh, the giant statue that's LED-lined that can uh, project all kinds of different images and that kind of thing. Um, you know, that's not the... Uh, I don't think that's going to be the image that the false prophet sets up that we read about in chapter 13. But it, again, it's another desensitizing idea. It's, it's things that, that are being put out there and just sort of 
strewn about the earth are really intended to help people get more and more acclimated to the idea of globalism, of a global leader that will one day unify the world, sadly unify the world in rebellion against Christ. That's what we're in the midst of learning about in the book of Revelation, written 2,000 years ago, telling us about contemporary events even in our day. So that being said, we continue our look at this as we open up to chapter 16, and we are going to be looking now, uh, last week we looked at chapter 15, which was kind of an introduction to the bowl judgments, and now we're going to actually look at the bowl judgments, and there are seven of them, just like there were seven trumpets, just like there were seven seals. Um, these trump, the, uh, the, uh, the bowl judgments are now the climax of God's judgment upon a world that is in full rebellion against him. Now, you will see, uh, as we make our way through the passages, just how firmly the world is footing themselves against Christ as these things are coming down. It, it actually becomes no surprise that the world does rally around this Antichrist when Jesus returns specifically to try to stop him. Uh, it seems absurd to imagine that anybody would have such nerve as to do that, but I do think that that's exactly the mindset and attitude that will be pervasive around the world, by and large, for the most part, among all people who are not believers in that day. Of those who get saved during the period of time we're calling the, the 70th week of Daniel and ultimately into the Great Tribulation period, those believers will hold on for that last little bit until Christ returns. But the world as a whole will be unified in its rebellion against him and taking sort of one final stand as Jesus returns. Uh, again, it sounds utterly absurd to imagine that somebody would have any sense that they could somehow win this battle. But I think the world, again, has been conditioned so much by that point, both through the Antichrist's miraculous powers, his ability to come back from the dead, uh, his partner, the false prophet, and the worship that has now been engendered around the world around him, the world will be ready for it. This won't happen all of a sudden, but it happens through various conditioning agents throughout history that have brought mankind now to this point. Globalization, for example, is generally viewed by most people in the world as a really good idea, because why shouldn't we unify to stop things like pandemics or maybe end wars and those kinds of things? Why shouldn't we rally together and, and ultimately try to feed the hungry around the world as a unified body? Why shouldn't we have an ID for everybody so that we can make sure they get food and medications and everything? Why shouldn't we have a database that has uh, information about everybody who's been vaccinated because it'll help protect those, uh, that'll save us from those who aren't so that we can make sure who's safe and who's not? Right, these sound like, you know, if you weren't a believer... These things would all sound fantastic. As a matter of fact, if you weren't a believer, a chip on your right hand or forehead so you don't have to carry a wallet around sounds like a great idea. But we know better. You know, if there weren't an Antichrist coming, if in fact human history weren't going to be wrapped up with the return of Christ, if all these things weren't really going to happen, why wouldn't you get on board with this stuff? But Jesus said... My words will not fail, okay? He has spoken it. He's told us about it. It's going to be. And so, therefore, we know that these things are coming, which is why we take time to understand them. And ultimately, even as the, the book of Revelation opens with that grand blessing for all of those who hear and who read and who live out the things that are written in this book, there's a blessing in that. There's lots of blessing in that. The blessing of knowing what's coming and being ready for it. The blessing of knowing that you want to stick ever closer to the Lord in the days leading up to that. There's tremendous blessing in this. And so 
we're studying these things and seeking to learn them. And I can't again tell you, I, I think I mentioned this on Wednesday, but I'm so blessed to see so many want to come and just study the Word of God. It is such a good thing, and I would say it's such a necessary thing in our day. We need to be in the Word of God like never before. And so, all right, so chapter 16 of the book of Revelation. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath, of the wrath of God, on the earth. It's hard to imagine a more frightening command to go forth. Now, the wrath of God, I think, in a general sense, has been happening since the first seal was broken. Once Jesus cracked that seal open and Antichrist began to go out and and conquer, as it were, to bring the world together, God was unleashing this final series of events events that's going to ultimately culminate in the return of Christ. However, there is something particularly frightening about the idea of bowls of wrath being poured out upon the earth, and we'll see why that's so frightening as we make our way through the text. But if you remember at the end of chapter 15, the smoke filled the temple and nobody was allowed to enter into it. So whose voice is this coming out of the temple? God's. The wrath that is coming upon the earth in these bold judgments is from the Lord. It is not uh, that the events that we're going to see taking place, the cataclysms on the earth uh, and in the heavens and such, this is not the result of some uh, other person. It's not the result of things like global warming. It's not the result of any of the things that generally will probably be applied to explaining them in those days. Even still, as we'll see, the world that it's happening to is going to recognize that this is coming from God. And so should we as we read it. We recognize this is actually the Lord saying now to these seven angels uh, to pour out the bowls. And some early uh, uh, manuscripts say the seven bowls. In other words, each angel has a bowl. uh, And pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Now, as we mentioned last time, the bowls, and the reason I make this point is because some of your translations will say vials or something like that. And that's fine. But what's in view is the idea that it's a shallow bowl Uh, in which any kind of uh, material that's in it, in this case, either incense or it's whatever it's viewed as liquid or whatever's in it, as it is poured out, because of its shallowness, it can be poured out very fully, very rapidly. Uh, And people have seen in this, by the way, in in the fact that this not only reads very quickly, but even the instrument of pouring out that judgment is so shallow and easy to be poured out that these things happen in very rapid succession. Um, I'll also make the point that these seven bowls that are representing the judgment of God being poured out are different than the judgments that have come previously. Uh, When we look at these, we're going to see that there is a lot of similarity between almost all of them and the trumpet judgments that have come before, and also the judgments that God brought down on Egypt back in Exodus chapters uh, 7 through 10. And so when we, uh, or 8 through 10, so as we look at that, we're going to see a consistency, a similarity in some of the judgments that God has brought. Now, the fact that God literally brought these judgments on Egypt before, right? Egypt was pummeled, and not just Egypt, by the way, but Egypt's gods were pummeled in these judgments. They were not random judgments. Uh, Between one and five gods, based on the various judgments, were being literally directly assaulted by God as he brought these judgments down as if to demonstrate to his own people and also to the Egyptians that he alone is the Lord. 
This is a message that God has sent often throughout the times he's brought judgment. We talk about Ezekiel 38 and 39, where God comes to act on behalf of Israel as the nations around her attack her, and he does so in such grand and obvious fashion so as to make sure his people know and the nations that are attacking them know that he is the Lord. Now, as we get closer to the time when finally these judgments come, this is the last thing that happens on the earth in the time of the dominion of mankind, which means the next thing for those who ultimately will perish in Christ's return as he puts down these armies that come against him, their next stop is the white throne judgment. This is the last time they will ever be on the earth. We'll read about it in chapter 19. This is heavy. This is a big deal. And and if you were coming for a nice happy message, just wait till next week. <laughs> the first coming was way better uh, in that regard. But, um, but I, I don't want in any way to diminish the gravity of what is taking place here. Uh, there is nothing joyful about this particular thing except the knowledge among those believers that know that this means finally wickedness, evil, people destroying one another, people hating God and destroying the world, all this kind of thing, that ends because of this. And there's a measure of joy and relief and that comes with knowing that we're going to just see the, the millennial kingdom ushered in and the world will be as it's supposed to be. We find great joy in that. But the days leading up to that day are terrifying and terrible and judgment. Uh, and so uh, these bowls of wrath are God pouring out his righteous indignation upon a world that hates him, but dares to take up the place that he created and dares to claim ownership of it and leadership of it. The question is asked in chapter 13 of the beast, who is like the beast and who can make war with him? The bold judgments are the answer to that question in grand fashion. And so the bowls of the wrath of God are about to be poured out at God's command at the hand of the angels that go forth. Uh, verse 2, So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. Um, so uh, to connect the idea of the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast is a mark that is put into place by the false prophet alongside of the concept of worshiping the beast. And this mark is one without which you cannot buy or sell. You cannot be part of the global system of buying and selling. You have to live black market from that point on, essentially, if you're going to survive outside of it. You need to have a mark on your right hand or on your forehead, without which you cannot buy or sell. However, it is not only about buying and selling. It is a mark of allegiance. It is saying that I buy in with this new global system under the reign of Antichrist. Now, if you recall, in chapter 14, the three angels uh, went about the heavens and declared, the first one declared the everlasting gospel. The idea of, and, and there was a call for, uh, and then ultimately the fall of Babylon, then there was a call here ultimately to repent and not to take the mark of the beast because of the judgment that will come upon those, the sure and unavoidable judgment that will come upon those who take the mark of the beast. There could not be a more dire warning given in Scripture. If you take the mark of the beast, you are damned. There is no escape. Abandon all hope, ye who take the mark, if I can borrow from Milton. 
And so there is a call to the world to not take this step and make allegiance with the Antichrist, but rather to turn. As a matter of fact, each of the bold judgments in itself provides either an opportunity for repentance, to turn away from that direction you're walking in and to give yourself to the Lord, to put your trust in him. But at at no point in these judgments do we see anybody do that. Uh, More on that as we go. But the mark of the beast and the worship of his image is is ultimately the the mark that brings upon them these loathsome sores that they that they now take on. Now, of course, in uh, in Revelation or in, uh, Exodus, uh, in the plagues that came down, one of the one of the plagues that hit them were the were the boils that they received. Now, by the way, it shouldn't surprise us there are some similarities between these judgments and what happened in Egypt, because Egypt, metaphorically speaking, in Scripture, represents the world. Uh, it's various gods, it's various uh, practices, those kinds of things. The wickedness that took place there, uh, the captivity that God's people were under in it, they were sort of prisoners of the world. Remember, believer, that as a Christian, you are not of this world. We are in it, as Jesus said in John 17, as he prayed for his disciples and all of those who would believe their testimony, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. So we need to start thinking that way. Because this world is ending. And all of our pursuits, I'm not saying we quit our jobs tomorrow. Please don't misunderstand me. We're not a cult that's going to go hide up on a hilltop waiting for Jesus to come. We're going to live each day. We're going to go to work. We're going to go to school. We're going to do it. We're going to get married. We're going to do what we're going to do. But we always do so in the knowledge that this could be the day that Jesus snatches us away and we see all these things ultimately begin to unfold. But we need to have a mindset that is not about this life, but the next. That needs to be the undercurrent of a believer's life. If it's not, get with the Lord and see if he doesn't convince you of the importance of that. Spend time in the Word. We are constantly reminded of people like Abraham who looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. And he was comfortable living in tents because he was looking for something better and later. Deferred gratification. That should be two words that believers live under. The idea that we're not living for this, we're living for that. And so those who take the mark are those who are saying, I'm not living for that, I want to live for this. And that's a a fateful choice that they make. So, uh, loathsome sores. We also see the stings in chapter uh, 9 of Revelation in the trumpet judgments where these locusts come up from the bottomless pit and they sting people and the people who are stung want to die, but they can't. Okay, so there is, again, somewhat of a consistency in some of the uh, uses of, of the various plagues. There's a thread that seems to be somewhat consistent in some of these, in many of them. Verse 3, Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Now, again, we saw this earlier in the, uh, uh, in this, in the uh, second trumpet in chapter 8, where a third of the ocean became blood. And sea commerce and traffic came to a halt in that because of this. You can imagine ships, engines, trying to make their way through bloody waters. That was a third. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why we know that the vile judgments or the bold judgments are different than the trumpet judgments, because the trumpet judgments ultimately resulted in the destruction of a third of the earth, a third of the waters, a third of the vegetation, a third of mankind. 
these judgments finish the job. Okay? Um, so now, instead of a third, and by the way, a third of the waters are still blood, presumably, and now the rest of the seas, the oceans, are blood, like of a dead man. Imagine the stench of such a thing, globally speaking. 70% of the earth is covered in water, which means 70% of the earth at that point is now covered in blood. It's horrific. It's horrific. But there's a reason why this particular thing is, is the case. But I'm going to read the third bowl as we begin to look at that. Now, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Okay, so not just the salt waters, but now all the fresh water. This, the, the last two bowls, but even more particularly the third bowl, is much like the very first plague that came upon Egypt, right, where the Nile became blood. The Nile is a freshwater river that the Egyptians and, and, and those who ultimately are on the banks of the Nile would primarily get their water from in that time. And so essentially what is now being struck is the ability to drink fresh water. If you have a pitcher of water in that day, it won't be, you know, your little pure deals at home and all that, not going to help. It's, uh, it's blood. It's blood. Um, so similar again to the plague we saw in Egypt back in that day, God strikes the water and he turns it to blood, both salt and fresh. Now imagine trying to live without water. Whatever remaining supply, boy, how many of you have moved to Tennessee after last winter and this is going to be your first winter? Okay, some of you, right? Stock up on some water uh, or some of your supplies. Don't hoard, but get a few things because the first snowstorm that happens, <laughs> the grocery stores will be empty. People will think the apocalypse has happened. Most people have enough food in their house to live for three or four days without having to go to the store. But you would think nobody had anything on the cupboards. They're bare. We need to just hoard, you know. But imagine if you couldn't get fresh water. Any water that remained in gallon jugs and bottles, whatever, they would be immediately gone, and there'd be no way to replenish them. Even those cheap companies that actually just use faucets to fill their bottles and that kind of thing, they can't do it, get away with it either. There's nothing. And so, without water that is drinkable, you, you don't have water, you don't have coffee, you don't have, you can't boil things. Yeah, oh, the horror. But, um, but you know, there's, <laughs> you think people are irritating now when they've only had one cup or something? Imagine nobody having coffee at all from now on, you know? That would, boy, talk about a bunch of irritated people all around the world. Um, but you can't make things. You can't boil water. You can't make sodas. You can't make juices. You can't, I mean, literally, you're struggling to find anything at all to satisfy the ever-intensifying thirst. Now, in response to that, or in concert with that, I should say, in verse 5, John says, I heard the angel of the waters saying, that's an interesting thing. You know, we've seen the, uh, the angels having different responsibilities through the book of Revelation. Apparently, there's an angel whose job it is to manage the waters. John, uh, is there a, an opening in that? Or, yeah. But uh, it's his job to, do so, to watch over there and manage the waters in some way. And he said, 
You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, or otherwise uh, sometimes uh, the Holy One is in some of the early manuscripts as well. Because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. So again, not random. Uh, Throughout the book of Revelation, we have seen the blood of the martyrs. Throughout history, we have seen God's people wiped out by a world system that doesn't just want to silence them, but wants them destroyed. And the angel here sees the justification for this plague in all of that. Um, When God gave the law in the Old Testament, and remember, the church is gone at this point, so in many respects, uh, this really deals primarily with Israel. So there's an element in which the law is sort of uh, able to be brought up here and, and, and referred to. When God gave the law and he spoke of civil law, it was eye for an eye. Well, here's an example of that. They killed the martyrs, shed their blood. This is your recompense for that. It's a very deliberate plague. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. It's important for us to remember the righteousness of God is not somehow sacrificed on the altar of destruction. God's righteousness is in view in the midst of these judgments. You remember how in uh, chapter 18 of Genesis, as God was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham stood in the gap and bartered with God. Don't think in that, uh, in that bartering exchange that somehow Abraham stopped a mean God from crushing Sodom and Gomorrah. God was actually demonstrating his willingness to allay his judgment until the last possible moment so that nobody would be unjustly judged in that. And Abraham asked the question rhetorically, Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer is yes, of course he will. Even these judgments are genuinely righteous. Remember, um, as we make our way through and we see the people of the earth blaspheming God and they are rejecting him in the face of being judged, some people often say that, well, you know what? People will turn if they're just given a chance. If, if they saw the judgment of God coming, they would run to repentance and they would put their trust in him in the midst of that. They won't. That is how hard-hearted and set in their ways against him, not just set in their ways, set in their ways against him. You will not be my Lord. I will not have it. Okay. There are those to whom... There are those who say to God, your will be done, not my will, but yours be done. And there are those to whom God will say, sadly, tragically, not my will, but yours be done. Verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given uh, to him to scorch, was given it to him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat. And they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Um, So whereas previously a third of the sun and the moon and the stars, a third of the day and night lights in the sky were quenched, were, were put out, so that a third of the day basically was still dark, 
Now the intensity of the sun's heat is raised up to the point where men on the earth are scorched. Now previously, uh, we saw that the sores came upon those who took the mark. So who presumably did not get the sores during that period of time? Yeah, believers, tribulation saints, those who came to Christ after the rapture of the church and are now enduring this period of time. Um, whether or not they experience some of these things is hard to know for sure. Uh, I'll explain more in the next plague that we look at, but we don't know for sure if those who took the mark are still the target of these plagues or if, in fact, believers during this time will have to endure some of this as well. We don't know for sure. I'd like to think not, but we don't really know the answer to that for sure. Um, but notice again the response here that when, the, when they are scorched by the sun, they blaspheme God. They curse Him. They want nothing to do with Him. Again, you would think under those circumstances, people would turn and say, okay, I, I, I repent. I, and, and by the way, not just because of the punishment that they're experiencing, but because they're acknowledging that it's God who's doing it, which means they're acknowledging Him. They're recognizing that He is there and He is doing these things. So it's not like, man, I just wish this global warming would stop, or I wish the atmosphere, wish Bill Gates hadn't put aerosol in the atmosphere and burned holes in it so the sun's burning me directly now or whatever, you know. No, it's, it's like they know it's God. It's clear to them. And so they have an opportunity. I have doubted you. I have rejected your existence. But now I know without a shadow of a doubt that you are real. You exist. And I now recognize that you've talked about this stuff in the Bible. What else does it say? Men and brethren, what must I do to be saved? You would think that would be the response. It's not at all. Uh, it's like the old saying goes, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And so here they are responding against him. Now verse 10, then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Notice the specificity of that. And his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. So whereas the sun intensified its heat, presumably its light as well, now all of a sudden on the throne of the Antichrist, whether that means very localized or whether because his kingdom essentially encompasses the globe at this point, it might mean the entire earth. We don't know for sure, but at least partially, if not entirely, darkness has now come on the land and it brings with it pain. They gnaw at their tongues in agony at the pain they're experiencing while this is happening. In the judgments in the Exodus, there was a darkness that could be felt. That's how it's described. It's very ominous. It's very cryptic. A darkness came on the land of Egypt, and it was a darkness that could be felt. And the only people who didn't experience that plague were the Israelites. In their homes, they could light candles. They could see. The light for them was not gone. But for those around, those who were not of Israel, the plague came upon them and they couldn't see anything. They couldn't see their hand in front of their face. I don't know how that would have looked. Like, could, a, could an Egyptian have looked in his, uh, as a Hebrew's house and not seen the light on in the window? Apparently not. They only saw darkness. What a bizarre and frightening experience to essentially be 
for all practical purposes, be made blind until that plague was over. You didn't know where you were walking. You didn't know if you were tripping on something. You couldn't see anything. Here, there's a darkness that brings with it a pain that they're experiencing. Now remember, every one of these plagues brings with it an opportunity to repent, but the clear response here is that they would not repent. It's not that they could not, they would not. Never, never underestimate the hardness of the hearts of the unrepentant sinner. Matter of fact, you might remember what it was like. I do. I remember knowing the right thing but refusing to do it. Praise God for His grace, that's all I can say. The sixth bowl, verse 12. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and see his shame. Who's coming? Who is this speaking? This is Jesus now speaking in verse 15. Verse 16 finishes the thought and says, they gathered, uh, uh, And they gathered them together. That the they, by the way, is the dragon, the Antichrist, the false prophet. They gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon or Har-Mageddon, Tell of Megiddo, Hill of Megiddo. So we now see the sixth angel pouring out his bowl on the river Euphrates. Now we have seen this previously, right, in the trumpet judgments where the river Euphrates once again came to the fore. And there was this sort of demonic sort of army or, 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 or creatures kind of a thing in view there. Here we see literal armies uh, inspired by Satan himself, led by the Antichrist, deceived by the Antichrist and the false prophet, whose miracles and signs and wonders coerce them to gather together in this place called Megiddo. Now Megiddo is a hill, but there's also a valley of Megiddo, which is also known as the Valley of Jezreel. It's known by various names, and some important things have happened there, both in recent times, but also in biblical times. In biblical times, we see uh, Gideon, for example. He has victory there in that part of the world. We also see Saul killed in that part of the world uh, and such. We see lots of biblical things taking place there. In modern times, it's also served as a battlefield for some of the more modern-day skirmishes that have taken place uh, earlier in the century in that and throughout history, really. Uh, but this is going to be the playing field, if you will, the battlefield that the nations will come together ultimately when the Lord returns, and they will, there's some debate, by the way, about whether these nations come together to fight amongst themselves and then turn their, their, their attention on the Lord when he returns, or if the Antichrist has convinced them that this is a time for us to gather together because the God who is going to come back is going to meet there, we need to be ready for him. We don't know what their thinking is in that moment. But we do know that ultimately they do rally together behind the Antichrist and seek to uh, stop Jesus from coming to establish his kingdom. Now that happens literally in chapter 19. And so when we get there, we'll see what is being described here happen. That's why we mentioned last time some of the things that are described don't necessarily fit chronologically in the unfolding, but we are told about them as sort of a done deal, but we see them happen later in the book. In this particular case, this is one of those. 
uh, the fall of Babylon. We're going to see, even after the last judgment is poured out, we see the description of the fall of Babylon given in detail. That which happens in the last uh, bold judgment we see spelled out in the coming two chapters before we see the return of Christ. So we see here again uh, this idea of these unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the second beast, or the Antichrist and the false prophet. Um, there's a lot of discussion about why frogs. There was a plague in Egypt upon the, uh, that was a plague of frogs, which was an assault on the uh, Egyptian god, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Heket, who is a goddess of, of, of birth and fertility and that kind of thing. Um, people have tried to connect the dots with that there. A um, few different ideas on that. But in any case, there are these spirits that are essentially doing the bidding of the dragon who has now empowered, again, these two uh, beasts to convince the world to ultimately come together. Now, remember, Antichrist comes on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation. Well, again, I want to try and be a little careful about how I use my terms. At the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, and the first three and a half years were a time when the Antichrist is essentially solving problems and making the world a seemingly palatable place. Israel has is be, is, is, is been given the opportunity to, to once again practice their worship and the sacrifice of animals in the temple. A temple is rebuilt during that time. Um, the Antichrist in the midway point of the 70th week, or the 70th week means the last seven-year period of time on earth before Christ establishes his kingdom. In the middle of that seven-year period, the three-and-a-half-year mark, Antichrist comes into the temple, as Paul describes in Second uh, Thessalonians 2, and as we read about in Revelation 13, he declares himself to be God. He goes into the temple, into the holy place. And this also is where the false prophet establishes the image we read about in uh, Revelation 13. And the uh, false prophet demands that the world worship the Antichrist and the image that bears uh, his semblance and such, and that's where they're required to take the mark as well. But this is what's happening at the midway point, which means now that these judgments are coming, we are way past the midway point. We are now literally on the cusp of the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. We are deep into this seven-year period of time. Um, and so the Antichrist is at this point presumably working overtime, trying to get the nations together because there is a battle coming by an invader from the heavens who is coming to establish his kingdom. By this point, the Antichrist has most of the world behind him. Now, in reality, we know that there are believers during that time. They're not aligning with the Antichrist. And there are probably pockets of people around the world that are just rebellious by nature and don't believe in overreaching government and talk about overreaching government, right? Uh, but they just don't want anything to do with Antichrist. Maybe they've even, you know, a lot of people read their Bibles who aren't believers. And so they're like, okay, this is what the Bible talked about. They've never gotten right with Christ, but they know the playbook. And so they just don't want anything to do with it. Well, they need to get saved too, but maybe they're aware of what this is all about. But not every single human being on earth is necessarily lined up with the Antichrist. But that being said, by and large, most of the nations of the world are. Even Israel, prior to Revelation 13, has vaunted this guy as their Messiah. They have received him as Messiah until he goes into the temple and desecrates it with the abomination of desolation. And then he begins a persecution against them that tragically will make Hitler's pale by comparison. 
in Zechariah chapter 12, there's mention, uh, if I remember statistically, Hitler wiped out one-third of existing Jews during the Holocaust. Antichrist will leave, of all that remain, he will only leave one-third. In other words, two-thirds will be killed. There's a reference to this in Zechariah chapter 12, which means that of all of those Jews that exist during the time of Antichrist, only one-third will come through the tribulation period and into the millennium. It's a horrifying thought, but this is what's coming. So, oh, by the way, too, the river Euphrates is dried up so that these uh, kings from the east can make their way across that, that area without having to make their way through the river uh, and ultimately come to um, Megiddo as well. Uh, it's, it's at Megiddo, um, which is a body of land. Again, it's named variously in Scripture, but this area of Megiddo where this will take place is southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So if you look at your Bible map, some will show Megiddo or the Valley of Jezreel and this kind of thing. If they don't, you just know that if you put your thumb between the Sea of Galilee and right about here then will be uh, Megiddo. This is where this will take place. Um, it is interesting that as they make their way across the Euphrates, the dried-up Euphrates, uh, it is interesting that the Euphrates and the Tigris, that area in there is known as Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia has often been called the cradle of civilization. Relatively close by is going to become the graveyard of civilization. Um, as Jesus comes and, and, and puts down this, this ultimate rebellion. So, to finish up, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Oh, by the way... Um, In, in verse 15, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. In, in, uh, in, in, matter of fact, why don't we turn to 2 Thessalonians for just a minute? We haven't done a whole lot of turning today, so why don't we do that? 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, of course, in Matthew 24, Jesus also makes reference to the idea of the thief coming. And the issue is being prepared. Uh, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians. Did I say 2 Thessalonians 5? 1 Thessalonians 5. <laughs> I don't have a 2 Thessalonians 5 either, so. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, verse 1. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. This is Paul writing. Uh, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden, and notice when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. Again, that's very similar to how Jesus described the last days and like labor pains increasing. Um, but you, brethren, uh, and they shall not escape, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. So there's the they that say peace and safety and have no idea what's going on around them. And there's the you that are not living in darkness. Okay. So you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and of love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation, sort of a prototype of the armor of God in one of Paul's earlier writings. Uh, later on in Ephesians, he gives a, a fuller description of the armor. But verse 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. By the way, this is one of the reasons why the fellowship of the saints is so important, because we need to encourage one another about these things. He is coming. The day is coming when judgment will fall. We want to be encouraging one another to holy living, to looking to the Lord, to being a witness and a testimony of the world outside, because these things are sure. Now, Paul here mentions, again, the idea of, of the coming of Christ, the second coming, happening like a thief coming in the night. Now, you might ask yourself, how can they still think this throughout the book of Revelation? As we look at Babylon in the next couple of chapters, we'll see that they are marrying, they are trying to live life in, in Babylon like, it's, like nothing's happening. They're trying to just live and, and, and have their existence apart from what God is doing. It seems crazy to think that could be happening. But again, this is a time in history when the number of people that are willing to repent and put their trust in Jesus is at an all-time low now at this point. The witnesses previously, whether it's the two witnesses or whether it's the 144,000, there seems to be a wonderful evangelistic movement that takes place then, but that time seems to be gone now by the time we get to the bowl judgments. And you are choosing your sides and driving your heels in all the more firmly with the side you've chosen. If you are choosing with the Lord, then you are resisting, you are hiding, you are trying to share your testimony when you can, but you know you're just holding on for that last little bit, which is essentially what Jesus is saying in verse 15. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. The day is coming when judgment will be final and done. There is in this a call for those to come and be saved and for those who are his to continue to hold on that little bit longer. It's almost done. It's almost over. Now, there are many saints who die during the tribulation period. They're martyred. They don't take the beast and they're beheaded. As we find out later, that's the form of execution for those who don't take the mark. Sounds horrific. But there was a time when we guillotined people, wasn't there? It's going to come back. That sounds crazy. Everyone loves the Antichrist at that point. Already, by the way, without trying to get too much on it, and some of you may know where I'm going already, but the pandemic and the response to it, which I think the real problem is the response to it, is causing an us-and-them mentality globally. Some of you will not be able to see your relatives because you're one of them. You're not one of us. That's a horrifying thought. It's a divisive thing. But that is the kind of conditioning that takes place en route to an Antichrist requiring everybody to take a mark. The, the, the vaccination is not the mark, by the way. But it will come, and people will be ready for it when it comes, and they'll be glad to take it. I don't think there's going to have to be tons of coercion. I think by that point, most people are either pretty much on board or they're pretty much not getting on board. But that being said, 
the time is now coming to a close uh, as, uh, in, this, in this sixth bowl. Um, also, I should say that Psalm 2, which I've referenced a few times, I think, along the way, I'm pretty sure, but Psalm 2, uh, I would advise you to go read it. Psalm 2 describes God's response to this gathering of the nations to come against Christ at his return, against the Lord and his anointed. And his response is that of laughter. You all must be crazy. Really? You're going to put your missiles and point them at Jesus. Good luck with that. Not to sound too silly and facetious about it, but again, it's absurd to think. Here is one coming in the clouds. Every eye sees him like lightning going across the sky. And they think, yeah, I think I got him. I got him. You've got to be kidding me. But that is the arrogance of mankind. Again, never underestimate how firmly people will establish themselves rather than submit to his lordship. Such is the condition of the world in that day and the growing condition of the world in our day. Verse 17, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. Interesting, the bowl is poured out in the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? And so there is sort of this sense in which not just the ground and not just the heavens, but even in the air, we're dealing with judgment here. But a voice comes out of the temple. Again, the only voice coming out of the temple is the Lord's. And so it is God who is saying, it is done. I thought it would have been cool if it was the same word as it is finished. It's not, though. Uh, it's actually a different term. But it means, it, it speaks similarly to the idea that it is completely filled up and done. There is no more. This is the end. It's the climax. Now, again, we see the description of some of what's happening here described later, but this is describing reaching the crescendo of the judgments upon the earth leading up to the establishing of Christ's kingdom. But notice the similarity between this idea, it is done, and even in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Verse 18, and there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was such great earthquake such a mighty and great earthquake as has not occurred since men were on the earth. This is the sound, this is the, the feeling, this is the events that are taking place at the close of man's dominion on the earth. This is what it sounds like and looks like and feels like as the kingdoms of man end. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. And even in this last judgment, the final opportunity, the last breath, as it were, men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So the great city was divided into three. There's some debate about what the great city is. It would seem, based on the fact that Babylon is mentioned in the same verse, that the great city referred to here is Babylon. However, Israel, or uh, Jerusalem, I should say, uh, earlier is called the great city, although it's called the great city when it is compared to, spiritually speaking, to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, there are those that think that what's really in view here when Babylon is named, and we'll talk more about this when we get into those two chapters, is potentially Rome. Uh, the seat of where, uh, you know, the religious union will be, the seat of maybe Babylon is intended to really speak of Rome as it's referred to elsewhere in Scripture as sort of code language. Um, we don't really know who the great city is for sure, 
Um, however, Babylon in Revelation is destroyed. Whether it's literal Babylon or a representative of, of Rome or whatever, it's destroyed. It does not seem that Jerusalem is destroyed. There is a new Jerusalem later, but it's, it, it doesn't seem that Jerusalem is destroyed in the bold judgments. Um, but again, we don't know for sure. When Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom in Jerusalem, the presumption is it's the same Jerusalem that's around right now. Uh, there will be a new temple in it, and there will be even a newer temple in the millennium, I believe. I think the temple that Antichrist walks into will be wiped out, and the millennial kingdom is described by Ezekiel in chapters 40 through 46, I think will be the, the temple during that time. But that being said, the great city that's being referenced here, it's a little hard to know for sure who it is. Um, it is also, I guess, significant to say Jerusalem is currently divided among various quarters, and so there may be a hint of that there. But in any case, um, ultimately, Babylon is remembered before God. Obviously, God doesn't forget things, but Babylon comes to the fore in his focus one more time, and he strikes it down. Hailstones are sent from heaven, ultimately upon all of those remaining rebels, uh, who resist him. Um, that's, that harkens back, by the way, Joshua chapter 10, uh, when Joshua was leading people on that long day. Joshua was given victory over many of the armies that he was, or the, the, you know, the soldiers that they were fighting against. But in, I think it's verse 11, where it talks about how God sent hailstones and struck the enemy people, and he actually killed more people with the hailstones than Israel did with their weapons. Uh, and so, Similarly, I mentioned Ezekiel 38 and 39 before. God brings fire from heaven and strikes the nations that are coming against Israel. Uh, King James, actually, in uh, chapter 39, verse 2, I think, talks about how God will sixth the invading armies. In other words, they'll drive back all but a sixth. They'll destroy five-sixths of the invading armies. Um, and he does these things, again, so that the nations will know he's the Lord. Which, on the one hand, makes sense since he's bringing his wrath out on the earth. But remember, once again, the opportunity to respond one way or another. But here, as the fullness of God's wrath has been poured out, the fullness of man's rebellion is recognized as well, as none would repent. But ultimately, they cursed God and blasphemed him because of the plague. Um, I may have shared this before, but, you know, I, I ask somewhat rhetorically, you know, what, what kind of nerve and, and bravado does it take for the world to think they could take on Christ at his return? It seems insane. How do you get to that place? Well, if you consider what's happened prior to Daniel's 70th week, or chapter 6 through up to chapter 20, essentially, um, Ezekiel 38 and 39 has happened where God has made himself known to the nations and to his own people. The rapture has happened. And, you know, we used to talk about the rapture happening and, and there could be various explanations as to how the rapture happened. And we used to sort of, and, and still do to some degree, think, well, maybe it'll be blamed on UFOs that came to take the undesirables, uh, undesirables out so they could bring humanity to its next quantum leap forward. That could be. I mean, I'm still in on that idea. It could be true. But, you know, I wonder more and more if the explanation for the rapture of the church by the Lord is going to be 
the Lord came and raptured his church. Because the Antichrist is going to stand up and convince the world that this God needs to be stopped from coming back and doing anything else. And they get on board with it. And they actually believe because he seems to come back from the dead, because he has miraculous powers, and just by sheer numbers of people on the earth maybe that are around him, they actually think they can. I don't know that it's going to take a far out explanation. It might just be that the world is so set against the Lord that they're willing to go this far to stop him. They seem to know what they're going up against when the time comes. And so it may very well be that they've known all along. I don't know. I don't know. I am thankful, though, that when we find out the answer to that question, we'll be watching from the bleachers. <laughs> Praise the Lord. If you're watching, if you're here and you're not a believer today, if you're listening later, you need to get right with God now. You want to come to Jesus today. You don't want to wait till tomorrow that is not promised to you. Um, don't wait around until you're in the midst of these things and you have to endure what this world is going to be in those days. I, you know, I'm not trying to make it sound extra terrible. I'm just trying not to pull any punches. We need to see this for what it is, the urgency of that, the absolute catastrophic nature of the world at that time and the nature of the people in the world at that time. It may not be easier to come to Jesus. You might find yourself rebelling all the more. Seek him now while he may be found, and he'll be merciful to you. Matter of fact, as we pray, I'm going to give an opportunity for anybody who's not a believer. Again, whether you're here or whether you happen to be watching or listening later, Pray then. Pray, pray while you're watching and listening. But if you're here now, I want to give you an opportunity to come to Jesus today. I think it's James talks about how, you know, some are pulled as if out of the fire and that kind of thing. Well, if you're scared into the kingdom, hopefully that's not where you stay in your relationship with God. But if that's how you come, praise the Lord for that. We all came in part because there's fire insurance involved. But hopefully we've grown to love the Lord for who he is. And we've come to follow Jesus and love him and to know him and to walk with him. But let me pray and we'll bring up an example. We'll, we'll give you an opportunity. Father, we're thankful for your grace toward us. We thank you that you're gracious and that you've spelled out in advance all that's going to happen so that we have a good idea. We have a clear sense of what is coming. It gives us something to look at the world now and consider where we might be and how close we might be to that. But most of all, it gives us a, a sense of the urgency of being right with you even now. Lord, I thank you for myself, my family, all of those here who are, uh, who are currently believers, who came to Christ already and have been walking with Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that you taught us what it means to be a child of God and to experience the joy that comes through that, the knowledge that you're with us through the best and worst times, that, Father, you're, you've got us in your hand and we never have to worry that someone will snatch us away. We thank you that the things that we're reading about here are not for your children who ultimately come to faith in the days leading up to that, but we do pray for those who enter into that time and have to suffer the difficulties, the hardships, the actual judgments that you bring down. Father, give them strength to resist. Give them hearts that are soft enough to receive you and your grace and your forgiveness, to put their trust in Jesus, even in that dark, late hour even as the thief on the cross had just enough time, so will those then. But Father, for those who are around right now and have opportunity to turn, 
and to put their faith in Jesus. I pray they would do it right now. And if that's you, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I am a sinner. The description of those we've been reading about sounds an awful lot like me. But I believe that Jesus died for my sin and he rose from the dead the third day and that there's a hope and a future, a promise to be with you in eternity. I'm sorry for all that I've done, but I thank you that Jesus has paid my debt. I thank you for your grace and your mercy toward me, a sinner. And I ask you to help me in the days that remain by the power of your Holy Spirit within me to walk with you each day until I see you face to face. I don't deserve such grace, but I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. It's interesting that you don't really see lots of sinners' prayers in the Bible, right? The point is that you come to believe. Whether you repeat the words that I say or whether in your own heart hearing these things, you say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for me. He rose from the dead. He's saved me from my sin. And you give yourself over to him. You're his now. Thankfully, there is nothing in heaven on earth, above or below, any created thing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He will finish the work that he has started in you even this day. And so walk with him. Seek him. Get around believers that can help you. Again, this is why it's important for us to fellowship together, to help one another as we grow in our faith, and we look forward to that day coming when we see him. The joy of knowing that we'll see him face to face without being ashamed or afraid, but being able to hear those beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. There's nothing like longing and knowing with certainty you're going to be there and hear that, be in that place. So praise the Lord. Um, if you like, we can take a couple of questions. It's 1130. Why don't we take maybe one or two if anybody has one. If not, we'll go ahead and close in song. If you have a question, just raise your hand and we'll go ahead and... Of course you got one, Alonzo. Okay, go ahead, Fee. What you, what you got? No, go ahead, Fee. We'll, we'll get Andrew next. Okay. Babylon. Thank you. Well, it's, it's split into three sections. Or... Three factions. Okay. Uh, commercial, religious, and political. And so... Uh, yeah. So, I mean, is, is that the case? But my biggest point is that uh, a lot of people say the United States is Babylon. And oh. because this is ha happens at the end of the tribulation, would, would that preclude the United States being Babylon because... You know, the United States is not in tribulation. Yeah, you know, uh, I think that preaches well. You know, what did Billy Graham say? If, if, uh, if, if God doesn't judge America, he's, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. You know, uh, I mean, it's, it's easy to make, and I don't even think it's unfair to make comparisons between the Babylon system and all that kind of thing in the United States. Um, Babylon... Uh, I think, though, is referring to an actual place. Now, there's some question as to whether it's literally Babylon being rebuilt uh, or whether it could be representative of Rome or something like that. Again, uh, um, uh, 
I think Rome is referred to, uh, or no, Jerusalem, I think, is referred to as Babylon at one point. So it, it's sometimes used as code. But I think really, though, uh, it, it, at very least, uh, as well as being a literal location, I think it, it, at the very least, also represents a system. Um, you know, when, when later the call is to come out of her, my people, um, I don't think that only simply means come out of that city necessarily, but it means come out of that system. In other words, a time has come now for you to be separate from that. Um, and, and a lot could be said about that. But um, I, th I think it's a literal place, but I do think it's in the Middle East and not here in America. I could be wrong, but I th it would seem that, you know, the consistency would cause us to think it's probably there. Although whatever nations continue to exist the way we currently do during that time will be under that system. I don't think there will really be many, many or maybe any nations that aren't, you know. So, I mean, some will resist the Antichrist to some degree. But, um, but by and large, the world will be under his, under his sway. Um, I, the idea of the city being divided into three, speaking of three different kinds of categories, I think makes some sense too. Um, and that may be what's in view, you know. Um, or maybe there are factions within that city physically that somehow divide into, who knows. Um, it's, <laughs> I don't know if you all are into dystopian movies. Um, but there are dystopian movies that speak of factions of people, you know, like... Um, uh, yeah, Hunger Games is one. Uh, what's that? Like Divergent, you know, these kinds of movies. You know, if you're into those apocalyptic kinds of films, um, you see that there's kind of a pattern formed within those ideas. And I think, again, those are conditioning ideas. Uh, the idea that people can sort of be funneled into categories of some kind and, and manipulated when they are, you know. Um, it's funny just, you know, how much pop culture embraces these ideas that we read about, and why not? Because if you sort of numb everybody to it, when it happens, it's already familiar. It's not shocking anymore. It just, it just oh, okay, well, I've seen this before. Whether, you even, whether you've even seen it, like you sort of have heard about it, some of the terminology makes it way, its way into our lexicon, and we just talk like it's just part of life. Well, People that are ill-equipped to resist in those days and people that are on top of that also familiarized with these things in those days are just easy prey for, for that, you know? And so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's important to know what's going on around culturally, both so we can speak to people who are in it, but also so that we can see sort of how the pieces on the chessboard are moving around and we're becoming much more acclimated to these ideas. And they're sounding, they won't sound far out when they come they'll be kind of familiar, you know? That's a really insidious, sneaky way that the enemy works. But, you know, the enemy's had a long game going for a while. Um, you know, it's very few things when that day comes are going to be sudden. I mean, the judgments may come suddenly, but the conditioning of the world to receive these things will have been something that's been at work for a long, long time. Um, so, yeah, Andrew, how about you? perspective was regarding the third bowl and the sixth bowl, where the third bowl says the rivers turn to blood, and the sixth bowl says the water in the Euphrates goes away. I was wondering if you had any uh, perspective on that. Oh, well, I just, I just think that, uh, again, if, if, if it's localized, it could be, but I think probably what's being described there is just that the Euphrates being blood now is just kind of still dried up and everything. Um, what's that? Yeah, probably, you know. I mean, the, the other possibility is that some of these things are more localized. Like, for example, when the, uh, when the judgment comes upon the seat of Antichrist, the throne of Antichrist in that time, that's kind of specific 
So it could be just in that area, although again, his influence is global at that point, so it probably speaks beyond that. Don't know for sure, but I tend to think it probably, the Euphrates is blood at that point and it's just dried up, you know? So anyone else? Joan. Run, run. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry about that. Blood is first mentioned in 16. It I'm says, sorry. Start over if you wouldn't mind. When it says, it says as blood in the King James first, but then in the next verse it says blood. Okay. But I just wonder why would the as blood be? Because to me that would reference not necessarily is, but as it, as it like. might be. Yeah. But in then the New King James, it says blood. Yeah. I just wondered why I would say as blood. Yeah, well, I'd have to look in, into the Greek and see if that term is there or not. But I would say, even though it may refer to as blood, later on it's clearly being spoken of being yeah, blood, as, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's, um, I, I don't think it's speaking of two different things. As a matter of fact, if we look at the justification for it again, they're saying you've spilt the blood of the martyrs now, so therefore this is a just judgment, you know? So the idea that it's really blood um, seems clear. I mean, but I'd have to look at the, the, the Greek on the it. The massiveness of the blood as yeah. spoken up to the, the bridles of the horses. I mean, yeah. it's hard to fathom that being literal. I mean, Yeah, you're right, it is. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, uh, last week when we talked about that, there's, it could speak of a smattering rising up like that. But, you know, there are some descriptions in antiquity of various battles that took place where kings came in and wiped out villages where literally the blood that flowed from these killed uh, literally spilt into some of the houses that were there and if people had fire that they were cooking on, it washed out the fire. That's the way it was described. Now that might be hyperbole, they might be exaggerating, or they might not be, you know. Um, I think we feel more comfortable sort of cleaning those things up a little bit and making them seem like they're exaggerating, but I'm not so sure I would be quick to do that, you know? Um, so, yeah, but it, it is. It's, uh, um, and, and, and in terms of so much of the water turning into blood, that may have something to do with some of that as well, you know? But, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. But anyone else? Maybe one more. All right. Oh, yeah. Thank God for lightening things up a little bit. Thank you for that. So, so if you didn't hear that, uh, the women's brunch yesterday, which I heard was really, really great. Thank you to Wendy and Scott for opening things up. And yeah, praise the Lord. Uh, some of the leftovers were brought today, and they're on the table. So you're getting a little sample of that. But um, we have uh, these little... Uh, like five by seven or something, uh, uh, picture frame things, inside of which has a really uh, pretty picture with the scripture that was the theme for yesterday, and there's extras. So uh, if you'd like one, you can take one home. So, all right. Doran, did you have one, or, or were you going to say that? <laughs> so. uh, just in, in scripture, sometimes as can mean having the appearance of, or it can mean becoming chemically the same as. So if it's just as the blood of a dead person, it would be immediately black and thick. 
but then if it actually chemically goes on to become that, it doesn't clot. The dead, dead person's blood does not clot. It continues to flow. So, huh. uh, which is why when they pierced the side of Jesus, there was clearly water, clearly blood. He was dead. That blood couldn't clot. So. Huh. You know, there are two things that are awesome about that answer. Number one, they come from a doctor who understands that. <laughs> Uh, secondly, they come from somebody else who loves the King James, and so it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Now, some of you use... <laughs> By the way, you'll notice from time to time I switch around versions because in this sanctuary, we don't have pew Bibles that everybody just sort of uses. Everybody just brings their Bible. And by and large, I, I think there's about six different versions that I'm aware are used in this church by various people. So I'm always going to be on some different version of it. Part of that is because I just like the different ones, but some of it too is because every now and then you ought to be able to read it just like it, it's in your Bible too. So, but um, that being said, I'll have to do a King James one day and just to be fair to you guys. As used in um, one day is as a thousand years, mm-hmm. and it was real interesting because his discussion was it doesn't say a day is a thousand years it's from god's perspective of time and our perspective it would seem as a thousand years right is is that what it is in most bible translations as it is as a thousand years well it it might be worded somewhat differently but that's clearly the intention that's that's made um that's the problem with english translations regardless of which one it is is you're taking one language and you never really get exactly word for word a lot of times. And if you did, it wouldn't make much sense to us. And so the challenge that translators have is taking, uh, and again, that's whether it's the King James translators or whether it's a modern-day uh, version. I mean, some are, some are terrible, but a lot of them are really good. But they all struggle with trying to take uh, not just idioms, but just taking a sentence and communicating it word for word. Matter of fact, when we say, and I'm one of these that tend to say this, I like versions that are as close to word for word as possible. But that's such a nebulous thing to say. Like nobody who translates really talks that way because you don't really get a word for word. You get something that conveys the closest to the meaning of the author as you can get. But it's hard to say you get a true word for word most of the time. It's just... uh, um, it's hard to do that when you're going from one language to another. And so, um, but so the word as would be an example of where you're conveying an idea, whereas the Greek term may or may not be there, but the idea that's being conveyed is being communicated in English. And so, um, uh, so when it comes to like a day is as a thousand years, uh, none of the versions that I know of are intending to convey the idea that God is literally reckoning a day from his perspective as being a thousand years in ours. Uh, matter of fact, um, because God is outside of time, these things are, I mean, he uses these terms so we can get our minds around things, but they don't really apply to him. You know, even in Revelation, uh, it says how we go to the tree of life once a month or every month and get taken to the tree of life in heaven and that kind of thing. There's a lot of things that are questioned in that. Like, do we need that? To, if we don't go, do we die in heaven? Probably not, right? It's just but there's something about going to the tree. But the fact that it says every month. Okay, so apparently time is reckoned somehow, even in heaven in a way, even though we don't generally think of heaven as being a place where we're just marking calendars and spending lots and lots of time. It's just, you know. So some of these things are, you know, on top of translating things, 
you can't say God has difficulty with this, but the idea is that in giving us the scripture, he is also speaking to man in terms that man can understand. Like, for example, Joshua's long day. We talked about it today in Joshua chapter 10. The sun stood still. Well, now, any astrophysicist is going to say the sun is in constant motion, just like the planets, just like we're moving, the, the, the galaxies are moving around the universe and all that. What do you mean the sun stood still? The earth turns or doesn't turn or whatever. They would, they would argue that point because it sounds quaint and therefore how can you believe the Bible because it says dumb things like this. No, but we still talk about sunrise and sunset, right? Even though we understand sort of the mechanics of things. But it's just the idea that, that the scriptures, that, that when God gave the inspiration of the scripture to the mankind, he spoke in terms that we would understand and could use. Um, and so that's why we sometimes, when we teach, have a difficulty of, of, of sometimes allegorizing or assuming maybe some things aren't meant to be taken literally. They're supposed to speak of something else. Um, and therefore, I kind of make a push to say, take things as straightforwardly as you can in the Scripture before you begin to assume it's allegorized or metaphorical or something. Uh, if something is really clearly metaphorical, you, everybody, it's just obvious. You know it. Um, God doesn't have wings, right? Jesus said God is spirit, right? So when he says, I'll cover you under the shadow of my wings, we're not to take from that the God has feathers like a bird or some kind of a thing. There's a, there's a picture there, a metaphor. But when God says there's 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, or there's 10 days of persecution, like the church in Smyrna, or there's something like that, we shouldn't assume that just means some other thing, because that opens itself up to subjective interpretation, which you can have a thousand interpretations of. It just, there's, there's, there's a whole science, if I can put it that way, there's kind of a, there's, there's ways to come to understand things that are consistent with biblical you know, biblical theology expression, all that kind of thing. So, all right. Well, I'll tell you what, it's 10 to 12 now. I really thought this was going to be five minutes, so I apologize for that. Why don't we stand? Let's sing a closing song together. Actually, all of this was a... Uh, a ruse so we could get the Sunday school to have more time to dry their painting today. <laughs> so hopefully it worked. Thanks for helping with that. We'll sing, I Stand Amazed in the Presence of Jesus.
Father, thank you. We praise you. We bless you because truly great and marvelous is your love, your mercy, your, great, your grace toward us. Thank you for all of these things. We ask you to send us forth rejoicing that we belong to you, your children, and one day we'll see you face to face. Thank you for redeeming us and calling us your own. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.